Hi folks, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News, and I'm here in the studios of our collaboration partner KVNF in Paonia, Colorado. Today we're going to talk about something pretty simple, food, but something also very complex, agriculture. You'd think with how important food is, we'd have the whole system figured out by now, but the fact is we don't. That's especially true in remote areas in the West where our farmland is somehow failing us. High Country News has been reporting on rural agriculture lately with our partners in the Solutions Journalism Network, and today we're going to talk about some of the surprising things that that reporting uncovered. With me today in the studio is assistant editor Kate Schimmel, who has been working on a package of agriculture stories for the magazine, and our editorial fellow, Lindsay Gilpin, who reported on young farmers. Later in the show, we'll learn about food waste and scarcity from our Solutions Journalism Network partners at Santa Fe Public Radio. First, let's talk a bit about the problem. Kate, what kinds of things were these reporters looking for as they researched agriculture in rural areas, uh, especially in Colorado and New Mexico? The main thing to know about the region that we were looking at, which is between like northern New Mexico, southern Colorado, uh, I would say a heavily agricultural region. A lot of farming in Colorado, potatoes, uh, in northern New Mexico, everything from pecans to uh, green chilies. And in that, I mean, you have so many challenges, including some really unexpected ones. It is actually tremendously difficult to get fresh food and even food at all in these areas. Um, it's uh, it's like a flood of abundance in some ways and then a total desert in others. And so a lot of the stories were about how to better put together these pieces that the region has. So that's kind of um, hard for us to picture, I think, sometimes in Paonia, where we do have at least a few farm-to-table kinds of places. So what's so hard about just growing food and getting it into the community where it's grown? Uh, well, I think there are a lot of economic forces against it. Um, for example, in the San Luis Valley, a lot of the potatoes that are grown there, they don't stay in the community. They go to grocery stores and elsewhere. Um, the other thing is there's just not a market. So in Sawatch, in the northern end of the valley, there wasn't a grocery store there for a long time. There was a gas station, and that, and that was it. Why is it not marketable to open a supermarket in a community? Well, I mean, some of it is size. Sawatch has 500 people. Grocery stores, and a, and a lot of food production, sort of relies on large quantities sold with profit margins coming from, from the size of that market. Economy of scale, I think it's called. Right, so you have you have a community where um, the only way that it makes economic sense is uh, to have uh, farmers come in, and pluck all the potatoes out of the ground, and, and ship them on trucks to how far away? I mean, it depends. Some of it's going, you know, you'll see it in your supermarket in Washington, in Illinois, wherever you are. Some of it is just going to Denver a few hours away. Um, I do think one of the things that's really interesting about that, so there there are kind of two economic struggles. One is for the people trying to buy the food, and then the other is for the people trying to sell the food. Agriculture, as as I think our myths tell us, is very hard business. So you have people in the community trying to make a profit, trying to make a living, um, and that's very challenging. And then the people that they live next to are having a really hard time buying the food. It's such a bind. And the solutions some of these small towns came up with are 
creative. Um, like what? Uh, I think my favorite was Swatch. I mean, that's part of the reason it sticks is they have the way they finally got a grocery store is they have a combined grocery store thrift store. (laughs) 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 Because as you might imagine, there isn't anywhere to buy clothes in Swatch. There's nothing. So um, they have a thrift store and um, all of that is donated. It's not consignment. It's donated. So the profit margins on that are probably small, but at least there's no cost. And then... Um, for produce and all of that, the person running it um, just made friends with local farmers and, and has these really close relationships and gets produce from them. Huh. And so basically that uh, offsets whatever was holding back um, on, on overhead, uh, the sort of ability for them to even run a market. So that brought their margins up. And was there any sort of nonprofit at work or, or was it like strictly market forces that they were able to overcome that? Right. So the success of a lot of these grocery stores, it's not just profit margins. It has to be community investment and it has to be um, sort of a belief on the part of the owner. So the person who owns the Swatch grocery store is she's a semi-retired journalist. She's doing this because she sees it as a community service. She doesn't just see it as a way to make money. Um, And that's pretty common. I think that's one of the things that's just really interesting with food deserts in general is like how could it not be somehow profitable enough or marketable enough to like bring food to people? You'd, you'd think that there would be some kind of equilibrium there, but um, it's just these sort of economies of scale and the way that things are distributed um, just kind of make that problematic in some way that's um, kind of vexing, I think, to me and many laymen, but apparently also to uh, farmers and people who are in the business. Yeah, I, I think it's such a fascinating problem that I I really think even the people who are part of it don't understand why it's happening. Um, I mean, here in town, in Paonia, there's an orchard where it costs more to maintain it as a, as a producing orchard than to just give it away. So um, you can just walk down the street and pick pears for free because they can't sell them. Like It costs them more to sell than it does to just give them away. Huh. So what are some of the other um, challenges that we find inside these systems? So the, one of them is, is uh, market-side challenges. Are there challenges in the uh, uh, growing of food itself? Yeah. Uh, in the San Luis Valley and northern New Mexico, you have some real barriers to um, to keeping these farms alive. Um, especially in northern New Mexico, a lot of them, their land is worth so much more to developers than they can make growing food. And so you see so much of it lost to development. And the solutions to that um, are really challenging. Uh, There's a tax proposed in northern New Mexico to give people a tax break, or there's a tax break proposed in northern New Mexico um, for farmers not even to farm their own land, but just to keep it open, not to develop it. And, of course, one of the potential uh, complaints about that tax break is that developers would use it to potentially abuse it and keep that open as parkland. And so inside of this, uh, inside of this reporting, um, there are a few different challenges, but what were some of the other solutions that um, uh, our reporters found or the reporters from our Solutions Journalism Network? Well, I think, again, going back to this idea of creativity, um, the, the solutions that people found were very much around the edges. 
So the American agricultural system will not be wholly fixed in northern New Mexico in the San Luis Valley. But there are some ways to make it work better for the people that live there. And one of them is is sort of connecting, the, like we said before, the people who need the food and the people who produce the food. Um, and that's true in a few different ways. I mean, there was the grocery store solution. Um, and there's also um, trying to get more people involved in agriculture at a very small scale. Uh, and then there's also trying to find ways to sort of squeeze food that ordinarily goes to waste into places where it's very desperately needed. So um, one person reported on um, food pantries in Rio Riba County, and like they would build connections with local farmers, local grocery stores to take food that ordinarily goes to waste and put it towards the hungry. Of course, here uh, in Paonia, we are uh, very much an agricultural community. Um, a lot of it. Uh, so I would actually invite um, listeners to this podcast or this show, um, if, if they do have some other solutions that they've found to these sort of uh, food problems, they should um, go ahead and comment on either the website of kvnf.org or uh, go to uh, the High Country News website, hcn.org, and offer some of their own solutions. And, and I think uh, we'd be happy to look into those and um, report them out. Um, I think one of the other interesting things um, lying under this is this other idea of waste uh, and uh, and its relationship to scarcity. Um, food waste that ends up in landfills across the country is generating as much greenhouse gas as the emissions from 33 million cars. Uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who we're going to hear from, a small company that set out to collect food scraps for biodiesel is hoping to make food waste into a solution. Um, the fledgling composting business is creating enough topsoil to mulch nearly two acres per month. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and listen to a story about this from uh, Ellen Berkovich, uh, is part of KSFR's Solutions Journalism Network grant initiative. It's the end of a busy noonday shift at Sweetwater Harvest Kitchen in Santa Fe. Uh-huh, thank you, sir. The restaurant serves organic food, and it makes sense to send the scraps back into the food system. Hi, my name's Soma. I'm one of the owners here at Sweetwater Harvest Kitchen. Sweetwater is one of 30 Santa Fe restaurants and 17 schools participating in a pilot program. They're composting their food scraps. Soma explains. If we occasionally have some food scraps left on the plate, then we bring it back to the dish area. We keep a, a bucket here, and then we just scrape it in the bucket. Any type of food, um, in, including meat, Meat, eggshells, bones, uh, any uh, food wastage that we have at all. And then um, our, our paper napkins that we use during the day, we can compost them as well, which feels really great. The Santa Fe food waste amounts to about one million pounds a year. It's processed by a small company named Reunity Resources. Reunity Resources creates aerated static compost at the Santa Fe Community Farm. Outreach Coordinator Juliana Chiano explains what's happening with the compost piles. We've just finished curing a, a 240 cubic yard batch of compost, and he is scooping it and then running it through the screener, is what you're hearing there. So the larger, the larger pieces fall out, and then the finished product is screened down to three, um, three-eighths of an inch. So you have this nice, fine, finished soil amendment. The nice, fine, finished soil amendment that's the compost 
is at the cornerstone of Reunity's ambitious project to influence both climate change and local hunger. Juliana Ciano and her husband, Tejinder, dreamed Reunity up in 2012. Our business had already been collecting used cooking oil, so we were familiar with the, the back alleys of restaurants, and we could we could see how much food was being wasted, and and it had always been part of our consciousness that that there can be a closed loop system, and so the more research, the more we found that this is a huge nationwide and worldwide problem that. So much food is being wasted between the farm and the fork, and yet so many people are still hungry. Two of every five plates go uneaten in the U.S. every year. That means that 40% of the food supply goes to waste. Food waste stored in landfills emits methane, among other greenhouse gases. That means that the carbon footprint of our national food waste is the equivalent of the gases that 33 million cars emit, million with an M. Many cities have composting projects already underway. They include New York, San Francisco, Minneapolis-St. Paul, Tucson, and others. Minneapolis-St. Paul has launched an organic curbside recycling program. It costs households $48 a year. A Santa Cruz, California program has diverted 11 tons of food scraps from the landfill. Juliana Ciano says this speaks to the many varietals of city ordinance that suggest how efforts can be municipal and local in scope, like Reunities is. In the city of Santa Fe, there is a piece of legislation called the Solid Waste Ordinance, which gives the city franchise to collect trash. And the reason for doing that is is that they, they are concerned about public health and safety to make sure that trash is being collected safely and regularly and not, not rotting. The caveat in that was that under the definitions of trash, food scraps were listed. And so we we went through a process with city officials to to figure out how we could surmount that. And there were there were two options. One was to change the legislation itself, which was forewarned to be a long, long, long process. And the other was that if we could work as advocates for the city to start a pilot program, then the city could put out a request for proposals. A handful of agencies applied, and then Reunity was awarded the contract. So we're at the community farm, which is also what is growing produce for Santa Fe? We're in the Santa Fe River Valley on an old family farm. John Stevenson, who is now 102 years old, is living in the house that he built with his father. Um, and this farm is his legacy. The Santa Fe Community Farm produces food and then donates it to the Food Depot and Kitchen Angels, which provides free meals to shut-ins. In New Mexico, one in four children are hungry, and so the work that the community farm is doing here is close to our hearts, and we love being a part of it because as we amend their soils, we feel like we're really feeding the earth that's feeding the hungry. It turns out that generating compost able to break down meat, paper, bones, as well as produce is a very scientific process. During that cycle, each of these aerated static piles is between 130 and 160 degrees. In spring at the community farm, Reunity was building a hoop house. Good compost improves crop yield for farmers. This is both the idea and the basis of the tests that are going to be going on at this very hoop house. Juliana calls it. Really looking at it as 
a living laboratory that growing in New Mexico is hard. Our, our soil is sand, it's clay, it's, it's desert. And so to do experiments with our compost and other um, soil amending recipes, so we'll be looking at the microfungi content and the micro um, bacterial contents and what different crops do best in different blends so that we can then be tailoring our finished compost to what what does our produce the most good. Bill, Bill's on the ladder measuring down. It's been a hilarious amount of geometry. We're all, we're all feeling grateful that we took math <laughs> and remember our Pythagorean theorems to, to make sure that this house is square on the bottom and round on the top like we want it. It's, uh... Brian Adams is a farmer who buys compost from Reunity to use on his flower and willow crops. I've been a vendor here at the farmer's market for going on 25 years. Uh, Reunity Resources has been a great resource for us. What we're seeing is uh, a response by the plants. Uh, we use their compost and, and the, the tea we make from it, and we watch our garden turn green right in front of our eyes. It's, it's really amazing. So this is our first year of using their product. And um, so in terms of yields, I would have to think we're getting more yields, but I know that it's working because we put the product on and the plants green up, they size up, and they get healthy. Consider it a twist on the phrase that most Americans by now know, not just farm to table, but table to farm. What were you doing before? Well, we just threw it away, and it broke my heart because we spent, you know, so much money on all this beautiful local and organic produce that we like to use. So this feels like a, a beautiful um, closed circle where, you know, it's going back to make the compost and we'll grow something else. For KSFR, I'm Ellen Berkovich. That story was from KSFR, which is a public radio in Santa Fe uh, and part of the Solutions Journalism Network grant initiative. Um, uh, one of the things that struck me in listening to that was uh, I, I wonder how easy it is to scale up that kind of program or to scale up some of these other solutions that these journalists found. Do you have a sense of that, Kate? I think scaling is a really huge challenge for a lot of these. Um, agricultural reform faces so many policy hurdles, both at the local level, um, as we heard in that story, and then all the way up to the federal level. Um, some of them are more likely to scale and others are just going to have to continue at sort of a farm by farm, community by community pace. Well, you're listening to West Obsessed, where the editors and writers of High Country News discuss uh, issues important to the American West. Uh, I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News. I'm here today to talk about the challenges of food and agriculture uh, in the small town West. I'm speaking with assistant editor Kate Schimmel and our editorial fellow, Lindsay Gilpin. Um, Lindsay, I want to kind of come to you now because there, there are big problems and big hurdles. Um, and I think one of them uh, is aging farmers. And so we kind of see a kind of potential solution to that problem in young farmers, but there are challenges there too. So why don't you walk us through your story a little bit and tell us uh, what you found. Yeah, so um, it was interesting hearing Kate talk about the, the problems with staying on the land and keeping it from development from generational farmers. You know, you have, um, you have a lot of aging farmers who have kids that don't want to take over the farm or um, maybe need to sell that land to send their kid to college or whatever it may be. And so, um, like you were saying, the average age of farmers is aging. It's 58 right now. 
um, only a fraction of that, about 6% are under 35 that are farming. And um, so I spent some time talking to uh, some women from the National Young Farmers Coalition, which is this nonprofit that's actually based in New York. But they're, um, they opened kind of an office of sorts on the Western Slope out here um, and are uh, talking to some young farmers in New Mexico and, um, and in Peonia, actually, and a few other areas around Western Colorado. And so they're really trying to build this network of young farmers because it is so difficult um, for young farmers to first get any information really about how to get into farming. You know, you don't really, you might, if you know a farmer, you know, from your hometown or you go wolfing on a farm a summer through college or whatever, but um, there's not a whole lot of agricultural education programs and ways for for people to get into it. So this um, organization is trying to really incentivize people to get into farming by forgiving their student loans, which I know sounds like an incredible ask. <laughs> like we all want our, <laughs> our student loans forgiven, of course. Um, but this program that they're pushing at the federal level, actually, and and at the state level is um, to count farming as a public service career, which basically right now, if you work for the government or um, you're a public interest attorney or a police officer, if you work there for 10 years, you can have your student loans forgiven after that time. So this nonprofit wants to count farming as that, um, as a public service career, because we are in such desperate need for young farmers to take over that land. Um, so like I said, it's it's kind of a huge ask, and that's why they're focusing on the state level. So they did a program in New York, talked to legislators, Basically, New York has this program, and it's only for 10 farmers a year, so it's not making a huge impact. But it gets people that will stay in the state for five years to farm there and run their own farm or manage it or own it, you know, any one of those things. Um, And if they do that, they get $50,000 in loans. And um, I talked to one woman there who's like 26 years old and was an environmental engineering major. Um, and she just kind of got into grazing techniques, like through environmental engineering when she was in college and decided she wanted to run a sheep and cow farm, um, and sell it, you know, in upstate New York. And, um, she said her degree helped her immensely, obviously, in trying to use those grazing techniques and better her water management systems and things like that. Um, and then she was able to actually like start a farm because she didn't have to, um, buy like huge equipment and ask for loans and all these things that she couldn't afford because um, she wasn't held back by student loans. Yeah, there's kind of an interesting, I think, teeny tiny movement that I think at the magazine we're interested in. We talk about a lot, um, sort of new pastoralists, they call themselves sometimes, um, new agriculturalists. These sort of, it's kind of in a certain segment of, of youth, uh, or young people, it's, it's like pretty cool. You know, if you can like run sheep. Um, so I was, you know, doing some uh, reporting on that earlier this spring, and I ended up um, in Northern California at a farm stand where there was a photography show, and there was like photos of goats, and it was like a <laughs> gathering of like farmers. And I, so I, I do, I think there is this kind of. Um, kind of cool thing that people see in it or the young people see in it and, and in some way are trying to connect to something. Um, and then there's like the reality of it uh, and the cost of it. Um, and I'm, I'm just kind of wondering, are there programs out there? Did you come across anything that helps people get over the financial burdens other than getting out of their student loans? 
Well, there's there's a few grant programs, I think, at the state level and then also um, just the different nonprofits that you can apply for um, to that the National Young Farmers Coalition kind of links to and, and works with um, that had been talking about. And of course, there's, um, you know, a lot of if programs where you can farm and just kind of start apprenticing, I guess, in, in the summer, like we were talking about, just for free, which isn't super helpful. But um, I think that gets people interested. And what you're saying, I think, is really interesting because there is this food movement. And even though we're facing all these immense challenges we're talking about, there's this growing food movement of people wanting to be connected to the land and young people really interested in, you know, kind of like bucking the traditional food system and and better understanding where their food comes from. But yeah, you you face these challenges um, like money, like we all face, um, that I, it makes it hard for them to see farming as a viable career in general. Um, you know, when you go to college, you're not really told that agriculture is like a thing you can do um, as a career to make money. Like that's not like a class that most people take, you know, so. Um, I don't know. I think right. Yeah. Your experience in college with top ramen is not how do I produce these noodles? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we uh, we had a, a group of students come by High Country News the other day, and I asked them um, what was most important to them when they left college, and more than one said sustainable living and connection to the land. I think there is this feeling there of wanting to try it. But I think college and society in general right now is it's it it doesn't feel like something that makes a whole lot of sense. And I mean, frankly, based on the reporting that came out of this package, it's you are signing up for a very challenging road. Um, and it's not clear where the American agricultural system will go as a whole. So you're kind of trying to find your little corner where you can make it work. Right. And it's a it's a huge investment, right? And it's a long-term investment. Um, and it's even the kind of thing where um, you may not see financial results for quite some time, maybe even a year. And that's only the first year. So then after that, if you've sort of, you've, you're investing in a system, you really need that sort of you know, security of, of a system that's not going to change underneath you. So you know, even if you get your student loans paid for, which, you know, more than 10 people will probably need that yeah, exactly. for that to work. Exactly. Um, even if that happens, uh, you have all these other problems. And you also, I, I would imagine that there's a gap between if aging farmers, between them and, and young people who are getting into it. Uh, how do you get them together? How do you get them together inside of this, uh, an apprenticeship or or something like that. So, yeah, I think that's a very like, sort of interesting concept. But oh, what's so hard about that? Getting young people who want to farm together with farmers who want to pass down farming. Yeah, I, that's a really good question. I think one of the challenges you see in Paonia is you have young farmers who are coming up with a certain idea of the kind of farming they want to do. Right. And then you have older farmers who are doing things that I think the younger farmers often don't feel they want to participate in. Um, and that can be as simple as, do I want a small farm or a big farm? Um, the economy of scale pushes you towards a big farm, but many of the young people coming into this, they want a small farm. They want a small organic farm. They want a small sustainable farm. And and I think there's a real challenge to bring those people together to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And I think also that it's difficult now 
because running a farm, even a small farm is, I mean, you're running a small business. It's always been like that, obviously. But now, you know, with the internet and social media and like trying to connect, um, you know, with farmers markets and co-ops and all these different things that are CSAs that are up. I mean, those things have been around forever, but I think young people want to really be a part of that community. And, um, and maybe that plays into kind of the disparity between aging farmers and, and young ones, um, just trying to connect and understand each other better. So just to circle it back into sort of the, the Western region here, uh, Lindsay, why is the National Young Farmers Coalition focusing on Western states like New Mexico and Colorado? Yeah, it's really interesting because they said that uh, they uh, – another one of their big campaigns, obviously, is Western water um, they be, and trying to farm in an age where we don't have much water anymore and in areas where it is dry uh, and a lot of drought is happening. And so um, they're, they're trying to focus their efforts on, on focusing on farmers that are coming up with innovative solutions, you know, to you know, farm with less water or different irrigation techniques um, – and trying to run these small organic farms in an area um, that they haven't in the past. And so um, they're trying to kind of expand their footprint around here, which um, turned out really well for this <laughs> this package because they're focusing on the exact area we're trying to, um, trying to understand better. Is there any indication that this kind of area is becoming a place for more and more young people to come farming? Um, is that one of the reasons they would have focused here? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And, and they we're working with a farmer in Paonia, I think, because here we have such a legacy, I guess, of, of small organic farms and, you know, young transient people coming in and out and trying to learn um, how to do organic farming um, in the West. I mean, I have to say that in, sometimes in the past I've kind of been like, well, geez, they're just getting a lot of free labor out of these young kids who want to farm. But I can actually see, I think, in a way how that needs to happen, because otherwise, how are they going to how are they going to learn? And if you've got farmers who are struggling anyway with all these different economies and economic and market problems, and not to mention climate problems, which we haven't really even talked about, mm-hmm. um, I could see where it would just be like, well, if you want to learn, you kind of <laughs> need to come and do this for a while. And, and uh, Kate, any any final thoughts on some of the other solutions or any of the other things that we found here that, um, that we need to talk about? I guess the only thing I'd say is my impression from seeing these stories come in and and talking to folks around here is this is a moment of tremendous opportunity. I think that there, as a reporter, I think it's a fascinating time to cover agriculture because climate change and other major economic forces are have the potential to totally transform how we do agriculture. And how farmers ride that out, I think it's a huge open question. And I would love if any listeners know of farmers they think are writing it out really well, we would love to hear about it. I think that's a good place to leave it. A little bit of optimism, a little bit of hope. Um, uh, again, thanks, Kate Chimel, our assistant editor, and Lindsay Gilpin, our editorial fellow. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor for High Country News. I'm here with support from KVNF in Paonia, Colorado. Uh, if you want to learn more about these stories and others or uh, drop, us, drop us a tip, uh, you can visit us online at hcn.org. Uh, and again, thanks for listening. 